Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. Welcome once again as we turn to Numbers chapter 20. Working our way through, we call the tipping point this morning. Let me ask you, have you ever allowed your anger to get the best of you? Now, maybe your spouse should probably answer this one. Has your anger ever gotten the best of you? Has your temper ever cost you a relationship, an opportunity, or maybe your reputation? If so, you have something in common with Moses as we look at him this morning. Last week we read how the Hebrew children had refused to trust the goodness and wisdom in God's calling and God's plan and the purpose for his children. And we applied that to our lives as we come face to face with difficulties, troubles, temptations, and suffering day by day. In this week's passage, we learn that the grumbling and complaining of the Hebrew children finally pushed Moses over the tipping point as his anger leads him to disobey God as he provides water from rock for the people. Now, as we open the chapter, we once again see the people complaining. Now, this is getting old, is it not? Every time I turn it, here it is once again. But before we go further into that passage, I want to take a moment and ask, why is this still going on? As we come in, this is 40 years. From chapter 19 to 20 is 40 years, 37 years. We're jumping now into the future, so to speak. And we're saying, why is this going on? I'm referring to their grumbling and complaining that's directed at Moses and in essence directed at Yahweh. Now, I can understand Moaning about lack of water, especially in the desert, when you're thinking two plus million people, then all their cattle and livestock, water was very scarce there, and it is something that they have to fight for all the time, but yet it still seems that they still do not trust Yahweh to provide for their needs. For reference, let's consider number 17 from our scripture reading earlier Landon gave us. We look at that and we see really a contest between the staff of the elders. They're, they're complaining against Aaron. They're complaining against Moses. God finally says, well, give your 12 tribes, you know, Reuben and Judah and so forth. Each of you give me your chief's elders staff. They take the staffs. We saw it. They put it in the tabernacle. And then the next morning they come out. And I don't know if you catch this, but it was miraculous. As they take Aaron's staff and they compare it to all the others, Aaron's staff, which is a dead piece of wood, was growing full almonds. Now, could you imagine that? You know it's a dead stick. I mean, it's been cut up. He's been using it now for for quite a few years, but it's just a stick. But here it is overnight. There's blossoms on it. And almonds growing. I don't even know if it was from the almond tree, but this, this staff is growing. Showing once again as a symbol, this is God's power is through the priesthood of Aaron. And what we see here is in Numbers 17.5, the purpose of this whole contest was the staff, Jesus, or God says, the staff of the man whom I choose shall sprout. So this is no, no surprise. He says, but the reason why, he says, thus I will make to cease from me the grumblings of the people of Israel 
when they grumble. In other words, this shall be a sign of who I am with and that I am with them and I am still the God of miraculous power. Aaron rods blooms with and bears ripe almonds, thus vindicating not only his ministry, but Yahweh's power. And again in Numbers 17, verse 10, as, as uh, uh, Landon read this, now God tells him, put back the staff of Aaron before the testimony, speaking of the Ark of the Covenant. And this is to be kept as a sign for who? For the rebels. Not for the believers. Not for the righteous, but for the rebels. This staff is a sign for the rebels that you may make an end of the grumbling against me. And if that was not enough, he finishes it with this. Lest they die. (coughs) It would seem that this miraculous display of power would put an end to their grumbling and complaining. You would think they would finally get the idea that Yahweh is strong enough and powerful enough to provide all their needs. Yet again, as we come to Numbers 20, it hasn't. They still continue to grumble and complain against Yahweh. Of course, we also must consider that the group that is complaining is different from the previous group. As this current crop of complainers are the children of the original Hebrew slaves that were delivered from Egypt. Now, as we go to chapter 20, there's four big events that I want to look at. Four big events. The first one, recorded in Numbers 20, is the death of Miriam. It's the death of Miriam. Now, take your Bibles, if you would, and join with me in Numbers chapter 20. And let's pray as we do. Father, we just ask you to come before us with us this morning as we explore this passage of Scripture, that you just give us wisdom. Help us to understand this ancient text given to people far, far away in a country far from us, from a time far removed from us. Help us to understand and apply it to our lives as it's examples for our instructions. We thank you for this. We pray for your blessings in your name. Amen. So the first event is the death of Miriam. In verse 1 we read, And the people of Israel, the whole congregation, came into the wilderness of Zin in the first month. And the people stayed in Kadesh. And Miriam died there and was buried there. Now Miriam was the sister, you would call, of Moses of Aaron. She served God in her generation and died. She did have some issues early on, but God took care of those pretty quickly with her. Her journey had come to its final conclusion as those who were first delivered from slavery from Egypt were cursed to wander in the desert for 40 years. Their lack of trust in Yahweh prevented that generation from entering the promised land. The MacArthur Commentary notes this, that these upcoming chapters that we're about to read here in Numbers 20 and on record the beginning of the transition from the old generation to the new generation. Geographically, Israel has moved from Kadesh to the plains of Moab. Near, You may have a map in your Bible, and you can see where they're moving closer now to the promised land, from where the conquest of the land would be launched. There's an interval of 37 years between chapter 19 and chapter 20. So first we see is the death of Miriam. The second event, though not in chronological order, is going to be Edom's refusal to allow Israelites to travel through their land to reach Canaan. Many of you will recall that the people of Edom were the distant cousins of the Hebrew children. 
Now, both groups had counted Abraham and Isaac as their forefathers, as Edom was from the line of Esau and the Hebrews from Jacob. Uh, Esau and Jacob were brothers who were at odds with each other. Genesis tells their story of God choosing Jacob, the younger brother, over his older brother Esau to carry on the promises of Abraham. And this bad blood was likely, most likely one of the reasons for the refusal. As we read in verse 21, Edom, their cousin, says, You shall not pass through. And Edom came out with a large army and with a strong force. Thus Edom refused to give Israel passage through his territory. So Israel was once again turned away from the promised land. Once again, they were going to wander for some time. The third event, which is actually the last event in chapter 20, is the death of Aaron. In the last part of the chapter, we read in verse 23, And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron at Mount Hor on the border of the land of Edom, Aaron shall be gathered up, for he shall not enter the land. And what we read then is then the, the passing of the torch from Aaron to his son. The MacArthur Bible Commentary notes that according to Numbers 33, verse 38, or chapter 33, verse 38, that Aaron died on the first day of the fifth month, of the 40th year. So here we are after the exodus of Egypt. We are now at the end of that curse of 40 years. Thus the first month here is the 40th. Which brings us to the fourth event and where we're going to spend our time this morning. And that's Moses' disobedience. And this is where we're going to study. Look at verse 2 of chapter 20. <clears throat> now there was no water for the congregation. Now this is not new. This is something that they had faced Many times before, we saw it in Exodus. There was no water for the congregation, and they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. Aaron is still alive at this time. During Israel's 40 years in the wilderness, water was their greatest physical need. The Lord had provided it continually, beginning at Horeb, recorded in Exodus chapter 17. You might remember there that Moses struck the rock, and water miraculously came for the rock. Now this present lack of water, again, stirred the people to contend with Moses as we continue in verse 3. The people quarreled with Moses, the scripture says. And they said, would that we have perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we should die here, both we and our cattle? And why have you made us come out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates. And there's no water to drink. Now, we have to remember this is a new generation, as I said earlier. But they still have the older generation's attitudes and complaints. And let me tell you. Parents, you will take your attitudes, your complaints, and your sin, and you will pass them to your children. So you need to be careful in this regard. In this case, they're saying, wish we would die just like our parents had died in the wilderness. Oh, woe is me, is their complaint. Seems they've learned nothing from their parents' mistakes. Like every generation from the beginning, from time, they are stained by sin-hardened hearts that question the goodness of God, and doubt his word. They adopt the same mistrust as their fathers and mothers, and they begin to complain against the leadership of Moses as well, as well as the plan and the purposes of Yahweh. 
in delivering them from Egypt and bringing them to the promised land. And what's ironic here is that these young people would probably not really remember what life was like in Egypt. They were not the ones who were building pyramids, who were taking in and making uh, rocks and being slaves. But yet their hearts yearned for the things they remembered as children in Egypt. The grains, the figs, the wines, the pomegranates. They quickly forget all of God's miraculous provisions that they have seen growing up over these last 40 years. God miraculously giving them water, giving them manna, giving them meat, the, the cloud, the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire at night, the protection that he had given them. This is all forgotten once again as they concentrate and focus on what they do not have. They're blinded to that whom they have. And I think you and I are very much like that. We're so focused on what we do not have. The, the great career, the good job, the well-paying salary, the home, the house, the apartment, this or that. But yet we forget to focus on who we have. That's the Father, as His children. We have all the things of Christ Moses does what Moses has been doing, as we see here, during the last 40 years. He mediates by bringing their complaint to the Almighty. In verse 6, we read, Then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent. Remember the tabernacle of meeting. And they fell on their faces once again in prayer, in mediating, Lord, sin, water, how should we resolve this? What should we do for these people? And what we read here is that the glory of the Lord appeared to them in verse 7. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, take the staff. Now what's the staff that he wants him to take? The staff of Aaron. The one that budded with almonds. He says, take that staff and assemble the congregation. Bring them near. And you and Aaron, your brother, and you shall tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. <coughs> So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. Once again, God is going to provide, and this time out of another rock, but this time he's not to strike it as he did before, but he is to tell the rock, bring forth water. Yahweh once again is going to provide for this group of ungrateful complainers. And notice in verse 8, God said, take that staff. Which staff? Again, the staff that bore the almonds, the one that we read was used in chapter 17 as a symbol of God's power and provision. And let's continue with verse 9. And Moses took that staff from before the Lord as he commanded him. And in verse 10, then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before this rock. And he said to them, hear now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses, in verse 11, lifted up his hand and struck the rock with the staff twice. And water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank and their livestock. Once again, Yahweh provides miraculously for these people to quench their thirst and to quell their grumblings against them. Once again, this demonstrates God's mercy as he grants their request for water. However, in this passage, we see that Moses has finally reached his tipping point. After putting up with these people for almost 40 years, instead of speaking to the rock, he strikes it twice. 
Now, the first time in Exodus, we read that he was told to strike it, but this time he was only to speak to the rock. Now, at first glance, we may think that this is no big deal. So what? So he hit the rock. But as we continue in verse 12, we read that this striking of the rock was a decision that came to be a deadly one. Verse 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. These are the waters of Meribah, where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord, and through them he showed himself holy. Now there are some special, uh, interesting things in that passage, of ver- that, that, those two verses. And I want us to consider some things, four things this morning about these two verses. Number one, Moses and Aaron are accused by, of Yahweh of not trusting God. They were, they, were, they were accused of God, excuse me, of unbelief. Why? Because they struck the rock instead of speaking to the rock. They directly disobeyed God's command. Now, this comes more across more clearly when we read Moses' speech to the people back in verse 10. Listen to what uh, uh, Moses first said to the people. He says, Hear now, you rebels. Shall we bring rock or water for you out of this rock. Did you read the implication there in his words? Moses infers that it would be him and Aaron that would produce the water. Remember, he was ordered to use the staff. Now, this staff was the one that Yahweh used to, to turn the water into wa- uh, to blood. It was the one that called forth frogs and lice and locusts during those ten plagues in Egypt. This was the staff that parted the waters of the Red Sea. It was the symbol of Yahweh's power, not Moses' and Aaron's. With that staff in hand, he was to trust all that he had to do was to speak to the rock. And that water would pour out. Yet he did not. And in his anger against the people, he struck the rock. Now you and I can understand his frustration and his anger, but in the end, He showed and demonstrated his unbelief in the Almighty God. Now the result, the second thing that I want you to consider, is that the result of his unbelief and disobedience was that he did not glorify Yahweh. And I want you to think about that. Their disobedience caused them not to glorify Yahweh. You see, the Lord accuses Moses that you did not uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel. So when he struck that rock, he did not glorify God. Moses served as a mediator between God and his people. And his responsibility was to honor God in all things and to demonstrate that Yahweh was holy. But all he demonstrated was an anger and a frustration That was the whole point of the law that was was given to him and to Israel. That which we read in Exodus and Leviticus, all that God had commanded him was to demonstrate to the whole world that God is holy. So you and I must think about that. When God calls us to be holy, it's to demonstrate not who we are, but to demonstrate who God is. And when Moses struck that rock, he demonstrated or showed or, or as a mediator, as a representative of God, 
He showed anger and frustration, not God's holiness. Now, thirdly, Moses paid for his unbelief and disobedience by forfeiting the privilege of entering, entering the promised land. Think about that. Moses had faithfully led this group of stiff-necked, hard-hearted, rebellious people for over 40 years. He has put up with all their complaining, their backstabbing, and their ungratefulness only to pray and intercede on their behalf. He has saved them from God's wrath more times than he can count. But yet this is a very high price that Yahweh exacts from him. You will not enter into the promised land. You will not eat of the fruit of the land. You will not build a home in that land. It's one that's hard to understand. But it comes much clearer once we understand the next consideration. And this is the fourth one from those two verses. In this passage, Yahweh shows and demonstrates both his mercy and his judgment. Now there's mercy towards those who do not deserve it. He provides the water. He provides for those he has chosen. But there's also judgment and punishment for direct disobedience. He says here, you did not hold me up as holy. But he goes on to say here that in verse, in verse 13, he says, And through them, God showed himself holy. God, God demonstrates that he is holy through both his mercy and his judgment. Now, as we consider this passage, it's a passage I know many of you have read. You knew the story. You knew that he wasn't going into the promised land. But we have to understand, why is this so important for you and I? For you and I have the responsibility to mind this passage to understand how they serve as an example for our instructions. These wanderings of ancient Hebrew children have been recorded, they've been translated, and they have been preserved through the last 4,000 years to serve for us more than just moral tales. God tells us that all scripture is profitable. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. And let me tell you, Numbers chapter 20 is no different. For it serves to glorify God, and it serves our good. For us today, I want to consider those four points, four points from the four considerations I just shared from verse 12 and 13. The first point is this, and you need to understand this, that even the most faithful of God's servants have their tipping point. And you need to recognize this. As much as you desire and love God and want to serve Him, you will have a tipping point. There will be a time where you will be unfaithful to God. You will fail to demonstrate His holiness in your life. We must never consider ourselves to be unbreakable or infallible to our own passions and our own doubts. Many times we can become overconfident in our abilities and even on our faith. And I think this is what happens with Moses. Just as Satan began to think that he was the light, Moses began to think that he was the power and the authority with God's symbol at his hand. Thinking ourselves highly in years of service, we can become blind to the ways in which we are no longer serving in faith, but in our own strength. Moses allowed his anger to overwhelm him. 
He allowed his hubris to think that he was providing water instead of God. And here's the thing. You and I can fall into the same patterns of unbelief and disobedience. You may be here this morning just doing your duty, just showing up, going through the motions. But I want to encourage you, that does not demonstrate God's holiness. Turn, if you would, please, to chapter uh, Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. In Hebrews chapter 4, this passage reminds you and I of our humanness and our need to constantly to rely on Christ. Hebrews in the New Testament, near the end of your book, Bible. Hebrews chapter 4, I want to start in verse 12. The Bible tells us that the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the division of soul and of spirit, of joint and of marrows, and discerns the thoughts and the attentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from God's sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom you and I must give an account. Let me tell you, God knows your heart. You may be fooling some of the people, you may be fooling all of the people, but let me tell you, you are not fully uh, fool, fooling God. God knows your hearts. Moses, I don't know how long this frustration, this anger was building up inside of him. It might have been for a while. It might have been just at this point. But eventually he could not do it in his own strength any longer. But look at verse 14. Knowing that God knows our hearts should bring us to a point of despair in some case. It may bring us to the point of then, then if, if God knows my heart better than I know it. And you may say, God, I'm exposed to him. Woe is me. But look down in verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Speaking of Christ, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Let me encourage you. If you feel like your faith is waning, if you feel like you're struggling in your sin and your temptations, hold fast to the profession that Jesus is Lord. That you are one of his children. Moses just had to hold on a little bit longer. But that tipping point comes for all of us. Maybe more quickly than his does. But then in verse 16, not only does God know our heart, not only do we, you and I need to be faithful to our confession, but in verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in time of need. We would need to remember that our strength is not in ourselves. It's not in the symbol of our faith, a staff, so to speak, but it's in the Trinity. It's in the power of God. Do not be like Moses and feel that you have the, the staff of God, then, then you can do whatever you want to do. How different Moses' life would have ended if he would have drawn confidence from Yahweh rather than his own power and status. One moment of lapsing. Never let your passion and pride get in the way of serving God as he is called and instructed you to do. The second point 
is that you and I must remember that God has chosen us, called us, justified us, and sanctified us in order that we may demonstrate His holiness and glory. Not our own authority, not our own power, not our own goodness, but to demonstrate His. Now the Apostle Peter wrote in his first letter, it's here on the screen, that as obedient children, that you and I are not to be conformed to the passions of our former ignorance. But as he who has called you is holy, be also holy in what? In all your conduct. It is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Now just as Moses served as a mediator between God and his people, you and I serve to glorify God in all that we do, not only to other Christians, but to those who do not know Christ. This is why God has called us to be faithful in serving him, because we can show that God is holy through our own actions. Scripture tells us in Matthew 5.16, In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to whom? To you? To the parents who raised you? No. To the Father who is in heaven. 1 Peter chapter 2, we read this as we went through uh, Peter several years ago. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. He says they're going to wage war against your soul. But keep your conduct among the world, the Gentiles, honorable. Why? So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of his visitation. In other words, they may not see your good deeds today, but I will guarantee you when they stand before God in the day of judgment, God will call your conduct into call against them, and they will recognize that you demonstrated the holiness of God. So let me ask you, when you're with your friends, when you're with your family, when you're at work, are you demonstrating the holiness of God? Or just your own self? Are you keeping it together at work within your own strength or in the confidence that you're demonstrating the holiness of God when you put away anger, wrath, and bitterness, resentment? When you're loving, when you're kind, especially to those who are unkind, who are unloving? What good is it to love those who love you, the Bible says? The world does that. But to be kind to those that are unkind to you. Be forgiving to those who won't forgive. And when you do that, you show the holiness and demonstrate the power of God. The big idea in this passage, and you may want to write this down. The big idea in this passage is that here it is, ready? Through our obedience, God demonstrates his holiness to the world. Let me say that once again. Is through your obedience, God demonstrates his holiness to the world. The reason why the world says, oh, we love Jesus, we don't like the church. The reason why someone wants to say we want to shut down churches, why they don't want anything to do with Christians, is because we have not truly demonstrated God's holiness. Now, that doesn't mean that the world will love us, but they will see his holiness. And we pray that they may repent of their sin and turn towards Christ. But is your life marked by compromise? By hiding your faith? 
by hiding the holiness of God, making, what's the word I'm looking for? Making um, excuses for what the Bible teaches, for what you say you might believe. Listen to this. God is not calling you to half-hearted obedience. Let me say it again. God is not calling you to half-hearted obedience, but full-hearted, sold-out obedience to Him. To many of you, you are not sold out to Him. You are living your life as if you're living in two different worlds, citizens of two different kingdoms. You have one foot on either side hedging your bets. Scripture says that you're lukewarm. He says you're not even good to be spit out. Be either warm or be cold. Serving God in some ways, yet you're serving yourself and others. You have accomplished nothing but marring the very name of a holy God. That was Moses' sin. He marred the name of a holy God. If you and I are honest, we're guilty of that. Even today, this morning, yesterday, this week. The Bible will expose our sin, but yet we're to come and we're to confess that sin. The third point is that we fail too many times to see the seriousness of sin. And I'm guilty of this. Churches around the United States are guilty of this. We do it by this. Let us help you with your mistakes. Oh, let us help you get new habits. Or here's some ways in which you might have failed. Or here's some problems in your life. Instead of just calling it sin. Penalty of sin, the wages of sin is what? Death. And that's what Moses is going to face here. We fail too many times to see the seriousness of sin that comes with costly consequences. Now, some of you would say amen because you are living out the consequences of the seriousness of your sin. In Moses' case, it cost him not only his life of entering his life, but also of entering and enjoying the fruits of his labor, of leading the people to the promised land. Let me ask you, what has sin cost you? For all of us, that answer is different in some ways, but it may be the same in many others. It has cost us relationships, it has cost us blessings and rewards of God. Please bring your attention to the, to the monitor. There's one old proverb that says this, sin will take you farther than you want to go, to keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. See, you think that this sin that you have is a little tribute. It's a little toy that you have, that you bring out when you're bored, when you're tired, when you're feeling rejected, or some type of way in which it makes you feel better. And you think that you are in control of that sin. But let me tell you, living in sin, playing with sin is very serious. It will cost you and take you farther than you ever want to go. It will keep you there longer. Jesus says it will enslave you. This is so true and many of you can attest to this proverb. You have have borne the cost of sin committed by yourselves Or maybe this morning, you are bearing the cost of someone else's sin against you. 
Many times we don't suffer just from our own sin, but by sin of others. We have to remember that our sin cost. In any case, you and I must understand that the seriousness of sin and its effect on our lives and the ones we love. The fourth point is that God demonstrates His holiness today as well. You and I may fail to do so, but God is holy. And His will will be done. He does this through like then, through mercy and through judgment. When Israel and Moses did not consider that, is, is what they did not consider is that Yahweh was testing them that day by withholding water from them at that time. It was not like God was unfor- forgetful of their need or he was playing hard to get. Scripture tells us that God uses events like these to test us, to demonstrate his holiness, to demonstrate his mercy, to demonstrate his justice and his righteousness. Turn, if you would, to Psalms chapter 81. Middle of your Bible. In this passage, we read clearly the point of the events recorded in Numbers chapter 20. Why was there no water? Why are they struggling? Why did Moses go through this? In Psalms chapter 81, verse 6, God speaking says, I relieved your shoulder of the burden. He's speaking of of Egypt when they were in slavery. He says, your hands were freed from the basket. He says, in distress, uh, you called and I delivered you. I answered you in the secret place of thunder. I tested you. At the waters of Meribah, Selah. As you and I learned last week, God is so sovereign over all things. Peoples, plants, animals, events. All things come into being by his wisdom and by his goodness. And as I've said before, troubles, temptations, trials come from God in order to test our character and to draw us near to him. And when we accomplish that, and when we do that, we demonstrate his holiness. But Satan uses those exact same trials and troubles and sufferings to destroy our character and draw us away from God. And many of us are here this morning, and that's what happened to us. In this case, Moses failed. As you can see, his character is tarnished. And in his actions, he was drawn away from God. And he bore the consequence of his half-hearted obedience. When you and I are obedient to God, not only is our character strengthened, but we display his holiness as we are drawn to him. So let me break it down into a few steps that you and I can do today. God has called us to total obedience. Why? So that we may demonstrate his holiness, his justice, his mercy, his loving uh, kindness to others. But what can you and I do to get together? Well, take your Bibles real quickly again. Turn to the uh, last book in the Old Testament, Malachi, right before Matthew. Malachi chapter 1. What you and I need to do is you and I need to recognize the folly, the foolishness of half-hearted obedience. Half-hearted obedience. Malachi chapter 1. 
Look at verse 5. And in Malachi, God is giving some accusations against the, 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 the Hebrew children, the Israelites. And then they then question, how have we done this? And then God answers that. So, so you can understand this, this, this conversation that's going on. In verse 5, God says to Israel, Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. A son honors his father, a servant honors his master. If I then am a father, God is asking, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? In other words, God says, you are not giving what is due to me. He says to the Lord of hosts, O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? God answers in verse 7. You have despised my name by offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. He says in verse 8, when you offer blind animals and sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? In verse 9, and now entreat the favor of the Lord that he may be gracious to us, they ask. With such a gift from your hand, will he show any favor? What I'm seeing as all this is you and I are like that. These people were doing what God had commanded half-heartedly. Yes, they were presenting their, 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 their gifts at the, at, the, at the altar. They were making their offerings, but there was half-hearted obedience. They were to give of the first fruits, of the good. And you and I are like that. We give God just the dregs of our time and our energy. We pick up the Bible and pray when we have time. We spend probably more time just pursuing Facebook and Instagram than we ever do meditating on God's word or praying. I bet you we spend more at Starbucks than we do in giving to God's kingdom here at the church. We do so much more for ourselves. And then we claim, well, God, give us your favor. God says, would, would the world accept that? No. But you and I stand and say, well, I'm going to give half-hearted obedience and that displays God's holiness. God says, forbid, it does. it does not. Number two, not only do we need to recognize the folly of half-hearted obedience, but you and I cannot forget the story of the Bible. Creation, fall, redemption, consummation, or recreation. Those are the four themes of Scripture. And here it is, these children of Israel have forgotten God's story. See, God is not going to forsake his children. They think they're left out to die, but God is not. God says, no, I'm sending someone to you. Your story will end at the cross and when I reunite you to myself. God will not leave us alone. And you have forgotten God's story in your own life with your half-hearted obedience, with you going past the tipping point with you might not demonstrating God's glory. You've forgotten that God's plan is to make you like his son and then to glorify you, to reunite us. Revelation tells us that we will be with him and he will be with us. He will be our God and we will be his children. Do not forget that we are still in God's story and we must continue to follow through. 
And number three, you need to trust that God has given and provided everything that you need and trust him. Here's what sin is. Get this. Sin is when you fail to trust in the promises of God. Sin is when you fail to trust in the promises of God. It's when you say, yes, I know God has promised this, but I'm going to get it my way. And Satan will always offer you a shortcut that looks good. And that's what it is. I know that I'm supposed to wait for this. I know that God is going to give this to me, but yet I want to do it my way. It costs too much to do it God's. We need to look back at all that God has done for us. We need to give thanks in all things. We need to put away anger, wrath, and doubt, and trust in the very promises of God. Let us consider Numbers 20. And understand that it's there as examples for us, for our instructions. That we may demonstrate that God is holy. Not only in our own lives, but to the lives of those that we love and care for, our friends and to the world. So that God may be glorified. That is what God has called you to. Would you do that? Christ has died so that we can do that. He's earned our righteousness. He's earned our justified place with him. We have been adopted in God's family. We talked about our identity in Christ in our adult Sunday school core class. And I want to encourage you, we need to live in that today instead of being grumbling, crying children or Moseses that look and get to the point where we allow our passions and our desires to lead us to disobedience. Would you trust in the one who's made all things possible? With every head bowed and every head closed, as the worship team comes on up, I want you to pause to consider the things that God has given us this morning. To pray and see if you're guilty of half-hearted obedience. If you're struggling with understanding that your obedience demonstrates God's holiness. Have you neglected the seriousness of sin? If so, if you're one of Christ, come, repent of that, confess it, and turn back and trust. If you're here this morning, you do not know Christ as Savior, then in the same way, would you repent of your sin? Turn and trust in the one who has done all that we need, that we can be one with Christ, be adopted in God's family. Would you do so this morning? Father, we just thank you for this passage. Father, I pray that you would strengthen us. We thank you for the passage that says that we can have this confidence. Father, that we can come before you and let us do so. Father, when we get to that point where we're to that tipping point, where we feel like we're about to disobey, Father, give us the strength to come to you. Let us humble ourselves. And Father, let us see that our lives that we live we're to demonstrate your holiness, whether we're at church, whether we're at home, whether we're at work or at play. Let all that we do glorify you. Give us the strength to do so. And we thank you so much for your love for us. We praise in Christ's name. Amen. Would you stand with us as we close? I surrender all. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. 
We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.